For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. As we continue to work our way through one of the most challenging health and economic crises in our nation's history, New York State's facing a multi-billion dollar budget deficit at a time when more and more New Yorkers are relying on vital public services. The need for adequate state funding could not be more glaring. One of the legislative priorities for the labor movement in New York State will not only generate much-needed revenue, but it will also create good jobs and address social, racial, and economic equity. That priority is the legalization of adult-use cannabis as part of a regulated program here in New York State. It's an opportunity to build a new industry from the ground up. The priority of the New York State AFL-CIO is ensuring these jobs are union jobs that are good paying and that these jobs create opportunities for communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the enforcement of past drug policies. Joining me to talk more about the adult use cannabis industry is Nikki Cateman, the political and communications director at Local 338 of the Retail, Wholesale and Department Store Union and United Food and Commercial Workers, an affiliate of the New York State AFL-CIO, and Tim McNutt, a former prosecutor who's now the director of Criminal Justice and Employment Initiative at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. So thank you both for joining me for this discussion. Great to be with you, Darcy. Thank you for having us. So, Nikki, I'd, I'd like to start with you. Since um, New York State officially launched the medical cannabis program back in 2015, Local 338's been organizing workers in that industry, and you've been front and center in an effort to expand this industry to include adult-use cannabis. When you and I spoke two years ago, we were focused on the medical program. So how was that program working out? So the medical program uh, continues to be an incredibly valuable asset in the lives of New York certified patients and caregivers. Um, there are you know, about 100,000 people enrolled in the program who do rely on it, who have uh, chronic illness and conditions um, or are dealing with chronic pain. Um, so that program continues to be an incredible lifeline for those individuals. Um, we have been working on different initiatives, both with advocates, with the industry, um, and with the state to try to expand the program to increase products that are available to uh, patients, as well as um, things to make it easier for doctors to enroll in the program. Um, we've also been working with the New York State Workers' Compensation Board about how we can make it easier for patients to uh, might like to use medical cannabis as an alternative to um, painkillers or other sort of prescribed medications. Um, so we are really excited because the medical program has made an incredible difference. And we see the adult use program uh, being able to build on that success and continue to expand um, the medical cannabis program and open up to more patients throughout the state. And so speaking of the adult use program, can you give us an update on where we are there? We, we heard the governor um, including it in his uh, state of the state. Uh, legislature seems to be on board. Is that right? So, yeah, I think absolutely. That's that's a fair assessment. Um, you know, I, I think we're all in a space where we hope that the third time is the charm. Um, the governor released his proposal a few weeks ago as part of his executive budget. Um, the New York State Legislature has also introduced, uh, reintroduced, I should say, excuse me, 
the Marijuana Regulation Taxation Act, um, which is the bill that's been sponsored by State Senator Liz Kruger and Authority Leader Crystal People Stokes. You know, there's differences between both bills. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's going to be a lot of negotiation that has to happen, which is, you know, par for the course. Mm -hmm. But I think there really is an excitement and a desire to get this bill done. You know, there are a number of new members of the legislature who uh, have been very, very outspoken about the need to legalize adult use cannabis and pass critical criminal justice reforms in connection to it. Um, and we really think that this year is the year that we can get this done because there seems to be a lot of excitement, um, a lot of conversation happening, and it seems to be happening a little bit earlier than we've seen in the last several years. So what um, in the new industry, what does it mean in terms of revenue and job creation? In terms of revenue and job creations, I'll, I'll start with job creation. Okay. Uh, there was a proposal, uh, a study done, excuse me, by the Rockefeller Institute uh, two years ago now mm-hmm. that estimated that if about 30,000 jobs could be created directly within the meta- within the adult use cannabis industry. Um, in the governor's budget proposal presentation, that figure was about 60,000 jobs. Um, and why this is really particularly exciting is, you know, there's a space to make pretty good quality jobs union jobs directly within the cannabis industry. So that's, you know, workers who will be in cultivation centers, processing, distribution within the retail dispensaries. But what doesn't necessarily get a lot of attention also is all the different ancillary businesses that are going to be opened and that support the adult use industry directly. And I think that often gets overlooked uh, because there is going to be need for advertising and legal and accounting and HVAC and construction jobs that really are going to be facilitating a market opening in New York that, you know, we can't do have a good system without those businesses. Um, In terms of revenue, um, there's, you know, been, you know, I think the state has it listed at about $300 million in new tax revenue. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, that's, that's even conservative because it doesn't necessarily take into account the larger economic impact that this is going to have around, you know, the jobs that are being created, the community reinvestment that's going to happen. Um, But in relation to that as well is obviously the social equity program is a critical component of uh, cannabis legalization and what the program is going to look like and the investment that's going to be made in in communities that have been disproportionately impacted by uh, prohibition and criminalization and the economic uh, impact that's going to have on communities, mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to put a dollar amount on that. So um, the larger impact, aside from tax revenue, is incredibly important, uh, both in terms of jobs and what that investment is going to look like in the communities people are living and working, but also um, on the larger scale of tax revenue that's going to be generated both for the state and counties. And are there things that we learned from the medical cannabis program that can be carried over to adult use? I think one of the critical lessons we've learned from the medical cannabis program is really around jobs, right? Um, Because part of the program, besides, you know, the obvious of access for patients, you know, as an alternative treatment for, for their chronic conditions and illnesses, I think one of the things that was interesting about the program was it was, you know, pitched kind of as a opportunity for new jobs, uh, particularly in upstate New York. And we've seen the state and and through the medical program create, you know, hundreds of, of really good quality jobs. 
And I think that's one of the lessons that we can take into the adult use program is we've negotiated really strong union contracts and set a standard for what careers can and should look like in the cannabis industry in New York. And I think that's a real opportunity for a lesson learned is, um, you know, we've really these have been, you know, job centers in some of the communities upstate where the cultivation facilities are. And there's a real opportunity to to grow on that, um, no pun intended, um, in the adult use program and, you know, for all the different cultivation facilities that are going to be opening and manufacturing processing, uh, it really creates an opportunity for what we can see as long term careers where people, you know, stay in their jobs, um, enjoy their jobs and really get to um, have family sustaining wages and benefits. And I know you've been working with Cornell and WDI, the Workforce Development Institute, on an adult-use cannabis workforce and community development proposal. So, Tim, I'd like to bring you in here to discuss the idea behind this proposal generally. Um, What does it set out to do? What is the goal of that proposal? The proposal really starts with a partnership between local 338, RWDSU, AFL-CIO, the Workforce Development Institute, and we at Cornell University, uh, really building on the work that we've all been doing um, in our own right, but coming together collectively to focus on a proposal that brings social justice and equity components to the proposal. Um, At Cornell, we formed the Criminal Justice Employment Initiative uh, to reduce inequalities in the workplace and reduce barriers to employment for people with criminal records. And legalization of adult use cannabis provides incredible opportunity. Um, As Nikki mentioned, we expect possibly up to 30,000 new jobs. Uh, We expect these jobs to be really cannabis careers, we're calling them. Mm -hmm. And what's critical is making sure that the community that was most impacted by cannabis prohibition um, gets an opportunity at some of these um, good jobs, these new jobs. Um, And we really think that understanding sort of the history of involvement of the criminal legal system and education that can reduce and mitigate some of the collateral consequences to having a criminal record is an important step to address. And also making sure that this untapped talent pool uh, gets gets a good opportunity at jobs in New York State. So as a prosecutor, former prosecutor, um, Tim, you know, what have you seen or what do you draw from as far as lives impacted by the war on drugs and what's needed to help these people to start over, because some of that might just be the fact that they have this criminal record and and employers might be hesitant to want to bring them in, I would imagine. Absolutely. Really, it starts for us with kind of taking a step back and understanding some of the history uh, behind that and mass incarceration. You know, from 1970 to 2008, the number of people behind bars grew an unprecedented 700 percent. By 2015, approximately 7 million individuals were under supervision of the U.S. adult correctional system. People of color have been disproportionately affected by mass incarceration. Um, and though blacks and Latinos represent only 30% of the population, they comprise over half of those incarcerated. The war on drugs was really a significant driver to this. Uh, Rockefeller drug laws in New York State, um, federally the Sentencing Reform Act, uh, disparity in sentences for the distribution of cocaine and crack that's been widely covered three strikes laws. We're at a point where almost 70 million Americans have some form of a criminal record. And I think for our group and for our proposal, the collateral consequences to employment 
were some of the most significant factors that we needed to address. Um, the American Bar Association estimates that there's over 46,000 uh, bars or restrictions to employment for people with criminal records. We know from studies that 30% of individuals released from prison are unemployed after two years. The formerly incarcerated are five times more likely to be unemployed and earn 40% less annually. And I think as a former prosecutor, what I understood um, working the system is that it really can be a foreign language for many and a really uh, kind of unclear and difficult system to understand. And part of that system is criminal records. Uh, the way that we document criminal convictions that sort of stays with an individual for their lifetime. Um, we also know that these records have errors and there's been studies of FBI rap sheets where one and two have some kind of an error. In New York State, uh, rap sheets having errors, uh, criminal records having errors, and then the professional background screening companies that often employers rely on to do background checks often contain errors as well. And these errors can cause really negative impacts to someone trying to get a job, trying to make a change, uh, participate in the economy. And so those kinds of things have informed um, you know, my movement from being a prosecutor in New York to working with Cornell's ILR school, uh, where they have been at the forefront of doing research, education, um, to inform policymakers about changes in the law in policy and HR practices. And we formed this initiative to really help address those issues that I just described and reduce barriers to employment for people with criminal records. And this proposal is a great example of that um, solution-oriented work. And that proposal is really um, comprehensive. I mean, it, it, it looks at immediate things that can be done and, and right out to what, uh, three to five years out, I believe, right? That's right, Darcy. And I think, you know, looking at each of the phases, and it's it's basically a three to five year phased program. Uh, our role specifically at Cornell is really focused on the education. Um, we address this knowledge gap that exists between employers and people with criminal records. We think a training program for employers uh, that they understand the stigma of a criminal record. They know how to evaluate a candidate with a criminal record. We can address their fears of negligent hiring lawsuits or inaccurate background checks, uh, working with coworkers. And for people directly impacted by the criminal legal system, our education helps them understand how to get a copy of their record, how to review it, uh, determine eligibility for important remedies like sealing and expungement, uh, certificates of relief that are available in New York to help someone uh, overcome barriers to getting an occupational license. And then there's great laws in New York that protect people to encourage this employment of people with criminal records, including New York Correction Law, Article 23, which is something that we cover in our training. And again, the focus is really just bridging the gap between employers who are looking for talented workers and people who have been involved in the criminal legal system that are talented and skilled looking for an opportunity. So Cornell's focus is really on uh, that legal education piece, the education and bringing them together. And I think Nikki can talk a little bit more about uh, the Workforce Development Institute's partnership in their training with us. Um, they've been really a critical partner in, in helping us address other things like 
uh, the retail aspect of training, the cultivation. Uh, so maybe Nikki can take a few moments to, to discuss their role. Yeah, I was wondering about that, Nikki. You know, so um, Tim laid the groundwork there, you know, looking at someone's criminal past, trying to get them back into the workforce, addressing the um, employers. So now you've got to get people trained to go ahead and either work at these places or open up a business, which is something that's got to be really overwhelming, that kind of thought, have, you know, having not, not done something like this before. Is that what you're working on with WDI? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're think, we've thought a lot about particularly the social equity program and how we can do the most good for the most people. Um, and, you know, working with partners who have been long advocating in the, the cannabis legalization space, but also working with legislators, um, we thought through a couple of pieces of, of, of this, um, you know, in addition to what Tim spoke to, um, which was training for brand new entrepreneurs, um, and obviously training for brand new workers. Um, and I'll start with the training for uh, new entrepreneurs uh, because you know there's there's a lot of elements of this too. Is one is helping somebody complete an application for the program successfully uh, so that they hit all the, the boxes on the checklist that are going to be required in applying for the program. Um, you know, understanding that there are um, you know, limitations around capitalization and, you know, working with them on that, but also um, making sure that entrepreneurs, uh, once they have a license, are in a place to succeed. Um, and that includes, you know, hard and soft skills, um, you know, doing payroll taxes and knowing how to file workers' compensation claims and being part of that system. Uh, there are a number of different parts of owning a business that, you know, to be frank, aren't sexy, but are critically important to people's success. And at the end of the day, what we want to ensure is that, you know, whether you're their uh, first time business owner or, you know, their social equity applicant who might have had a business in another space and are brand new to owning a business in cannabis, that they are put in a path to succeed. A, because that's what we want in this space. We want a, a diverse industry, but also recognizing that we want somebody who has a business that they can grow. Uh, because growing means hiring more people from from the community and growing their workforce, um, and it's good for everybody. Um, turning to the workforce development piece of this, right? There's, you know, very few times in in one's life or one's career or you know this or in a you know in a state's existence that they'll be part of the creation of a brand new industry. And with that, that means there's going to be you know, 30,000 people who, um, you know, might be brand new to the cannabis industry, or, you know, we recognize that there's going to be a large population of individuals who uh, might have worked in out of, you know, other states, or who might have worked in, in a underground or legacy economy, um, and want to work in, a, in the regulated market here in New York, um, and refine their skills. So we're excited about the opportunity for workforce development and training, uh, because there's going to be dozens of different job classifications where people can enter into, uh, whether it's in a cultivation facility, you know, working with manufacturing and processing or research and development, um, or any of the other other spaces in the, the adult use cannabis industry. Um, and that includes also, quite honestly, the retail dispensary. Um, my my you know, my experience for some is that I think there's a preconceived notion of what a dispensary looks like. You know, there might be um, some thoughts of, you know, something out of a movie depicting 1960s San Francisco. But so whether you've been to a medical dispensary in New York State or you might have visited an adult use this cannabis dispensary in another state, 
these are very secure facilities, uh, these dispensaries, and the workers are trained. They're, they have to understand the, the products they're selling, um, how to utilize them, the different properties in, in the cannabis product or the cannabis strain that they're selling within the storefront. Um, so there are a lot of skills that are needed to work in the cannabis industry, whether you're in a dispensary or you're working in um, a cultivation center do, as a, a bud tender. Um, and we want to make sure we're putting people on a path to succeed in the industry um, and that they're you know, getting jobs and that there's a career ladder within, within those jobs as well, but also that they have the skills to then be able to transfer to um, moving to different companies or quite honestly, maybe someday opening their own business, whatever that might look like. So this is a space where we're really passionate and excited about because of the nature of the work that's happening within the industry. And we're going to have to, you know, work, work in partnership with, you know, Workforce Development Institute with Cornell, but also with our community partners, because there are going to be a lot of jobs. And we want to make sure that those who are coming from communities that have been disproportionately impacted by prohibition and um, drug policy enforcement are able to access this training, that there are not barriers in place, but then once they've gone through this training, that there are opportunities for employment. And that really touches on some of the work that uh, Tim is doing with Cornell. And um, Nikki, I know Local 338 has been able to organize several hundred workers in the medical cannabis industry. You touched on that a little bit earlier, but can you just talk about the importance and the value of organizing the workforce in this industry? There is incredible value in, in organizing workers in the cannabis space. Obviously, there's value in organizing in, you know, in every industry, really. But in cannabis, particularly, uh, because of the nature of what the product they're working with, right, there are security issues, there are workplace safety issues that are unique to cannabis because of, you know, the fact that the United States government still classifies it as a Schedule One narcotic. But I think here, right, because it is a brand new industry, we have an opportunity to establish it as a, you know, quality cannabis career, right, where we can come in and say, you know, these are skilled jobs, they are valued jobs, um, that, you know, they should be compensated fairly, that they should have benefits, uh, there should be paid time off, and that there should be work, a voice in the workplace, you know, and I think there's a misconception about this industry, right, in a lot of ways. But, you know, there are very unique needs in this industry, but there's also everyday things, right? For example, we have a situation where we're working with one of the owners because uh, one of the employers, rather, I should say, because, you know, they're, they're having heating issues and we're working with them because it's a workplace safety concern for those who are working in that facility. But really here, there's a once in a lifetime opportunity, and I know I've said it already, but it's really it's really have to impress upon it where we can say that setting us that we have to set a standard for jobs. And that's partially because it's the right thing to do. But also when we talk about cannabis, we often talk about it and we have to talk about it from uh, a social justice lens. And that includes an economic justice lens as well. We want to make sure that these jobs that are being created are jobs that really support people and give people an opportunity to be uplifted, to be able to provide for their families and really, you know, make up for generations of economic barriers that have been put in place. Well, thank you, Nikki. And we covered a lot here. But Tim, I just wanted to check back with you to see if um, you had any other uh, final thoughts as we wrap up. Yeah, just to add to Nikki's point that Canada's career should be full-time positions that offer family-sustaining wages and benefits and guarantee protections. 
And we know for the populations that we serve uh, that employment reduces recidivism, it increases public safety, and studies show that for all of us, employment increases pro-social activities, we engage in fewer risky activities, provide income for families, improves mental health, and creates stronger positive relationships. And these are things that all New Yorkers should have access to. We think that the legalization of adult use cannabis will provide a great opportunity for all New Yorkers and even those that have been historically denied opportunity. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining me on the podcast. And on behalf of our president, Mario Salento, we look forward to working with both of you and your organizations and WDI on advancing the legalization of adult use cannabis and getting a program in place that provides meaningful opportunities for those who need it most. So thank you again for taking the time. Thank you, Darcy. We appreciate it. Thank you, Darcy. Joining me now on the podcast is our digital director, Kevin Eitzman. Kevin, how are you doing? Good, good. Ready for the winter to be over and the snow to stop snowing. I mean, it's it's <laughs> enough already. I'm I done. I know. It's long enough with most of us or a lot of us working uh, from home or from home part-time, uh, never mind locked up with the snow and stuff as well, right? So there was mm-hmm. a lot of good information um, that they were both were providing and... Um, what is another way, because people might be interested, I know, you know, the governor's proposed this in his budget, um, and we're going to be pushing it along uh, for the state fed. But what other ways can people follow along for developments if they're um, interested in this? So they can follow uh, RWDSU 338 on social media. Uh, that's uh, Local 338 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, as, as well as the New York State AFL-CIO. We'll be talking about um, adult use cannabis uh, as we both try to work to to pass this important legislation, create good jobs in New York, and and really move forward with a, a project that's long overdue. And I know Cornell's got a great website with some information too, so we can um, include that in some of our show notes if people want to check that out. And there'll probably be lobbying days, virtual as they may be, but um, we can keep people um, updated on that as well if they want to uh, follow us at the State Fed on, on social media. And um, Absolutely. we should also plug our... Uh, our new app as well, because I know you're really good with getting information out quick and early on there. Yeah, we have the Union Strong app. So we post all our podcasts early to the app uh, and you can go right to our website, uh, click the Union Strong app to get the all aboard link uh, and you download it and you'll get all our information right to your phone. All right, very good. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Union Strong Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe and give us a rating. This has been a production of the New York State AFL-CIO. Our president is Mario Salento. Our secretary-treasurer is Terry Melvin. We're a federation of 3,000 unions representing 2.5 million union members, retirees, and their families with one goal, to raise the standard of living and quality of life of all working people. We keep New York State Union strong by fighting for better wages, better benefits, and better working conditions. For more information on the labor movement in New York, visit nysaflcio.org. Until next time, stay union and stay strong.